Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. It's a special back-to-school edition of Groundbreakers Q&A as we sit down with Gary May, the Chancellor of UC Davis, and talk with him about the state of higher education today. In his third year as head of that university, May is trying to boost students' STEM skills, graduation rates, and career opportunities, while also trying to help get them affordable housing and food in a high cost of living area. May is also a big lover of comic books and the Star Trek series. He talks about how those two things are inspirations and have helped him to learn, manage, and lead in his career. Join us at Antiquity Midtown as we talk with Gary May about everything from STEM skills and deep space exploration to student loan debt and the recent college admission scandals. Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson, I'm the Executive Director. And tonight we're holding one of our Groundbreakers Q&A interviews in which we talk with some of California's mightiest movers and shakers, people who are bringing changes, making waves, and putting California's capital, Sacramento, where we are, on the map in bold font. And this evening's conversation is with Gary May. He's the Chancellor of University of California at Davis. And I, I consider him kind of like the Captain Kirk of that starship. And I mention that because I get the sense that uh, Gary May is an absolute Trekkie. And he, I thought was very impressive. He got William Shatner, Captain Kirk, to come to UC Davis early th this year uh, to sit down for a Q&A like we're doing now. And so as we talk, I'm, there's going to be a few questions I will ask him about Star Trek outer space, sci-fi, comic books, and other things. But May is also very notable for his career and his former post. Before he was at Davis, he was Dean of the College of Engineering at Georgia Tech, which awards, if I'm, if I'm stating this correctly, it awards more engineering degrees to women and underrepresented minorities than any other school in the United States, and that still holds true. President Obama gave him the Presidential Award for Excellence in STEM Mentoring, and STEM, that acronym stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. He was elected as a member of the National Academy of Engineering. That's one of the highest honors in the field. And he has authored more than 200 technical publications. He has contributed to 15 books, and he holds his own patent in semiconductor manufacturing. So obviously a lot. He also has a lot on his plate as Chancellor at UC Davis, which is the most comprehensive campus in the UC system, 37,000 students, and nearly $800 million annually in research funding. And because it's in California, uh, he has to lot, handle a lot of other issues behind, besides education. Uh, there are the hot button topics right now of finding affordable housing for students, um, making sure they are food secure, and that is a major issue at all higher education campuses statewide these days. The reason I put together this event was because I remember back in the day, sitting down at this, this point in time, early September, starting to fill out college applications and write college essays and totally freaking out. And then later I learned that my parents were freaking out too because they were thinking, how are we going to pay for this? college tuition. So even back then, it was a big deal. And not much has changed over the years, I think, with students and parents when it comes to applying for college. This year, I felt, was an especially notable one in terms of looking at college applications, admissions, and equity, um, because 
uh, the, I think it's called the Varsity Blue Scandal that hit the headlines earlier this year. It involves some famous celebrities uh, and it involves some notable schools in California. And it led the UC system to announce it's going to be making changes to its college admissions process. And I believe there are some bills around that topic that are being proposed by California legislators right now too. So this is a kind of a special back to school edition of Graham Breaker's Q&A. But I thought it'd be great to sit down with Chancellor May and talk with him about his career, his inspirations, his goals for UC Davis uh, and Sacramento, because they're tied. And then his take on the state of higher education, there's so much. Uh, college admissions and student loan debt, improving diversity and boosting STEM skills and on and on and on. So we probably will not get to all of that, we'll skim the surface, but we're gonna get a lot of questions from everyone in the audience and try to get uh, Chancellor's May's take on a lot of this. And before I talk to him, I wanted to give a special, few special thanks to people who helped put this event together. Um, we are holding this event in the lovely Antiquity Midtown in Midtown Sacramento. So I want to thank the owners, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose, for always being there and being great supporters. Thank you. Also to the people who are going to make us sound good on the podcast for you, Caleb Clark and Nate Graham. Thank you very much. Also, our volunteer extraordinaire, Rodrigo Ramirez, who's there to check in people and pour them drinks. Thank you, Rodrigo. Uh, Dana Tapusis, I hope I'm saying her name right, at UC Davis for helping us get Chancellor May. Of course, thank you, Chancellor May, for taking time out of a very busy schedule. And of course, last but not least to you, the audience. So I'm going to have Chancellor May introduce himself, but I wanted to make sure you, you uh, flesh out a few uh, a few things. Uh, your title, Chancellor. I think William Shatner asked you this uh, at the beginning of this Q&A. What does a UC Chancellor do? So I'd like you just to give us a little summary of what you do as a Chancellor. And a personal note about you, I mentioned Star Trek. I wanted to know, um, I watched it when I was a kid, my dad was into it, but for, for me, maybe for students especially, or anyone, if you have a top your favorite or maybe one of the top three episodes that you think you have to watch the Star Trek episode to see what it's about, especially if you're young and you're like, Star Trek, that's so long ago. So name, title, and favorite Star Trek episode that we must all watch. Okay, uh, I'll start with the easy questions. My name is Gary May. My title is Chancellor at the University of California, Davis. And um, what does a chancellor do? This was actually a question my kids asked me when I got the job. So. <laughs> Um, I think the chancellor job is a combination of uh, principal in, in the school sense, uh, mayor of, of the university, and maybe CEO is the right combination of uh, roles that you have as chancellor because uh, you're uh, concerned about um, your students, of course, and your faculty and, and the education that they're going to receive. That's the principal role. Uh, mayor, because you have an infrastructure that has a fire department and police department and uh, you know, water and, and, and power and all those sorts of things that the mayor has to worry about and, and housing and things like that. And then CEO, because I'm worried about revenue and cost and, and how we make sure that the education our students, is receiving, students are receiving is affordable. So, um, and I'm also out raising money almost half of the time, so uh, CEO is a pretty appropriate uh, role as well. So those are the three things I would say fit into the chancellor um, bucket. As, to, as for Star Trek, um, we had William Shatner uh, on campus May, uh, May the 11th, I believe, to talk about um, his career, uh, not just Star Trek, he's also been on 
other shows and he's been uh, he's had albums uh, music albums and, and done a lot of things written books he had a book that he was trying to sell as well we watched uh we screened uh the wrath of khan uh and uh then after the movie was over he uh, gave a short uh, speech and then he and i sat down like we were sitting with vanessa uh, he, like I'm sitting with Vanessa here now, and we had a Q and A. Um, I, unfortunately, I had to tell Bill that um, he was not my favorite character. <laughs> my favorite character was actually um, Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, for reasons which you, I'll let you guess for yourself. But <laughs> as a young man growing up in, in that time, uh, she was one of the few African American actresses that that was on television. She and Diane Carroll the other, was the other. And um, uh, as a young man, uh, that was. Uh, motivational for me, I'll put it that way. Um, episodes I liked. So I don't know how many people here are actually fans of the original series, because that's what I grew up on, that's what I like. So, uh, you know, my students watch The Next Generation or, or, or Deep Space Nine or um, Voyager or some of the other series, but the original series, my favorite episodes were um, Return, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, which was a great science fiction story. Uh, that was turned into a, a Star Trek episode, and uh, it had to do with time travel and Kirk going back in time to prevent McCoy from changing the timeline. And he goes back in time and he falls in love with um, what's her name, um, Jane? Uh, is that her name? Uh, famous actress. She was on D Dynasty. What was her name? Oh, Linda Evans. Uh, no, not Linda Evans. The Joan other Collins. Joan Collins, not Jane. Joan Collins. And so it was a really emotional episode. Anyway, that was one of mine. Um, the, another that I liked was, um, uh, 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 what was it called, uh, Who Mourns for Adonais, which was about um, discovering this race of aliens who were worshipped by ancient humans as gods, and they, they discovered Apollo, and they went to his planet, and he was trying to make them worship him, and there was this big uh, struggle, um, but the, the idea of alien beings being uh, the... the the genesis of, of God worship in ancient earth was, was interesting. And the other one I'll mention is uh, one called Requiem from Methuselah, which was, it's interesting, I know the titles of all these episodes, right? <laughs> I'm a real Star Trek geek. You are a Trekkie. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in Requiem from Methuselah, they come upon this planet where they're trying to, they're trying to get this drug, Ritalin, to save this uh, planet that's undergoing a plague. But the, the guy who has control of the Ritalin is, is this guy... Uh, who uh, turns out was uh, had spent a lot of time on Earth in various roles. He was immortal, and he had been various roles throughout the history of Earth. And he was um, uh, at this time in his life on his planet trying to create the perfect woman so he could have a person to love. And he had made this android that Kirk actually fall in, fell in love with. There's a lot to the story, but anyway, I just thought that was just an interesting interesting concept. Those are the three. And I'll just give you one quick close fourth, which was a muck time, which was Spock uh, falling, uh, coming up on the time when he had to, to mate, which Vulcans had to mate every seven years, and it was kind of just an interesting thing. He had been married when he was a kid by a mine mill, and he went back to Vulcan, and he had to fight for his bride because she didn't want to marry him. She wanted to marry somebody else, and Kirk and he and Kirk had ended up fighting, and he ended up thought he, he thought he killed Kirk, and 
on and on and on. There's just a lot going on there. But I'll stop there. I, I just I, I know dialogue from Star Trek episodes, so I'm going to stop there before. That's you. interesting because three of the four uh, are involved relationships. Yeah, I thought and that was actually the one of the more uh, compelling aspects of Star Trek was the human condition in this setting and this framing of. of science fiction and space and obviously star trek's on dvd do yeah, we, do we sure. know if it's on streaming now I'm, i want to go back and watch a few of uh, i imagine it probably is there's a new series you, you probably uh, have star trek collection. discovery which yep. which is very interesting um uh, which i'm watching which is kind of a, a retconning of of the original series but it's very very interesting and, and very well done well thank you for those suggestions um so speaking of inspirations and women um that have inspired you i wanted to ask about your your mother, because yeah. when I was reading up on you and your background, I read somewhere that your mother was among the first group of African-Americans to integrate the University of Missouri in the That's 1950s. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to know what she told you about the experience, and did any of her experience influence your thoughts or actions about as a student or about education? Well, yeah, my mother uh, integrated the University of Missouri with her class uh, in the 50s. She studied education, became a teacher. Um, she went through some adversity. Uh, she shared some stories. The first day uh, she moved into her dormitory, the house mother, as they were called then, um, was not at all thrilled that they were having African-American uh, women in the dorm. And um, she didn't know where they were going to sleep and where they were going to shower and those sorts of things. And my mother said, she remembered telling her, well, it doesn't come off, so everything will be okay. <laughs> and uh, Stories like that, I mean, getting called names, names you can imagine, and, and snowballs thrown at them and things like that. Uh, but I think the, the lesson from her was perseverance through all that adversity, and she got her degree, and she worked for 40 years as a teacher in the St. Louis Public Schools, where I was from. Um, I had, you know, uh, probably not as, uh, ad, as uh, adverse experiences as she had, but I, I will uh, just tell you a story. When I was an uh, undergraduate student at, at Georgia Tech, uh, my first day moving into the dorm, um, you know, on the, and dormitories have name cards on, on the doors, and, and my roommate's name card had, his name was Chip, and I, uh, Chip is an N-word lover, and um, uh, that was kind of disconcerting, and uh, the only, the good thing about it was that I, Chip apparently would, uh, you know, was the, he was the lover, so I would be okay with Chip, uh, <laughs> but I don't know who wrote the uh, <laughs> message to Chip, but... Um, um, but, you know, I persevered as well and stuck it out and got my degrees. And, and What year was are. that? What year did you enter? I entered Georgia Tech in 1981 as a freshman, and that was right after the Atlanta uh, uh, child murders. Uh, you know, young African-American males were going missing and being uh, f uh, found killed, and so that was another kind of harrowing part of that experience, but uh, got through it. So when I read about you, I also read the acronym STEM, you know, yeah. science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, as we mentioned. And I was wondering, as a child, did you know right away, I want to go into engineering, or did you stumble across it later on? Or how did you know that engineering was something, the career for you? Uh, so I didn't know it right away. Um, my original uh, aspiration was to be an architect, and now we're going to talk about comic books later, but um, I like to draw, and so I would draw the comic book characters, and, and I thought drawing architecture went together but as I got into more of those courses and I had to do the the drawing as a, an assignment with deadlines it got less appealing to me um, at the same time I was taking all the aptitude tests that that students take um, as as elementary school students and, and junior high students and I was good in math I was good in science and the counselors were telling me you should consider engineering I really didn't know what that was there were no engineers in my family 
immediate or extended, so I really didn't have any idea what that meant. But um, in high school, I was able to participate in a program called Develop Engineering Students, which was sponsored by a local uh, company, McDonnell Douglas, which made uh, fighter aircraft and other things. And um, I went there for the summers during my uh, high school years and learned about engineering and what the engineers did for their day-to-day -day, um, um, professional lives. And um, uh, between that and the, 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 um, the aptitude scores and those sorts of things, I decided to be an engineer. And so comic books, the reason why I'm asking you about this is you were interviewed, I think, shortly after you started at UC Davis by Scott Sybax. He has a show on yes. KBIE. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I watched it online. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about comic books. I'll just mention I'm my, one of my part-time jobs is I'm a librarian at a public school, uh, pre-K to 12. They all love graphic novels, and they're all asking me for comic books. And I'm thinking... That's not, you know, that shouldn't be in the library. You should be reading, you know, text and not images. But they love graphic novels. But what made me think twice was listening to you talk about comic books and why you, why they're important to you and how you learn from them. So I wanted to tell you, I wanted to ask you to flesh that out, comic books. and Sure. So when I was a, a young boy, I would go to the barbershop with my dad. And he's, as he was getting his hair cut um, at that barbershop, the, the owner had comic books and magazines around for people to read. And I was just a kid, and I taught myself how to read because of the, the graphic uh, uh, novel aspect of the comic books. And um, got hooked on them and became uh, someone who bought comic books regularly. And uh, I have a co collection now of about 13 or 14,000 comics. And um, I just enjoy the narratives. The, you know, people you know, have this misconception about comics being sort of low level, but, you know, you can learn your SAT words uh, from comics and, and the stories, the, the, the plots are pretty intricate and um, certainly the art is, is compelling as well. And so um, I've been into it. I'm still into it. I go to other couple places I visit here in Sacramento uh, once a week to get my uh, comics. I won't give them a free advert, any free advertising. I think I know one. Downtown, but, there's one in downtown. Uh, so there's one near the Capitol. Yep. Um, and there's one here um, on, uh, what's the name of the street? Uh, Fulton. Um, uh, that, that's probably the one I visit the most. At any rate, so uh, I, I just enjoy the, the good versus evil and heroes and villains and all those sorts of things. And, and I try to use my powers for good as a result, right? <laughs> and uh, I've seen all the Marvel movies. And um, uh, it's part of what I enjoy. And where do you put your 14,000 comic books? Do so they have their own room? The vast majority of them are still in my house that I kept in Atlanta. When I moved here, I kept my house. So. Uh, 90% of them are, are still in Atlanta, but uh, uh, the ones I've purchased since I've been here in, in the Sacramento area are in, in the Chancellor's residence at UC Davis. <laughs> uh, okay, and I just have to ask, I guess, favorite Marvel character, because that probably will be one that people will want to know yeah. who your favorite is. So I have a lot of favorites. I, I, I have a Superman cape in my office. Um, <laughs> someone gave it to me, and I say this is the Chancellor job is my day job. Um, <laughs> But actually, you know, Superman is great. He has all these abilities. But I actually like the more human characters who are self-made. So uh, Batman, you know, comes to mind, right? Uh, or or uh, Iron Man uh, comes to mind. People that have Iron Man, particularly for us engineers, all of us engineers really became engineers because we wanted to build an Iron Man suit. And we, I just didn't have enough capital to do that. So. <laughs> um, and uh, the Black Panther, of course, for, for, for sort of cultural reasons. 
um, and I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, but those are the more the more human uh, characters without the extraordinary powers are the kind of the more interesting ones. I want to go back to uh, Georgia Tech. You know, get, going into the dorms and seeing the sign and moving in with Chip. Um, you were quoted in a publication really recently saying, "Social support was a huge issue for me when I was when I was an undergraduate at Georgia Tech, where we had an office of minority educational development. There was academic tutoring, but it was also a physical location and community where minority students could find support and be comfortable." So I wanted to, I guess, ask about your experience as a freshman there, adapting to campus life. You know, you started off there with first day, and also your efforts when you were dean of the College of Engineering there at Georgia Tech to attract minority students to school and to make them feel comfortable and make them feel like this is the place for me. You know, how did, how did, um, how did your experience as a student uh, compare and, and contrast, I guess, with your experience working as a dean? So, so as a student, um, African-Americans on that campus, we were about 5% of the enrolled, enrolled population. So you'd very often be faced with a situation where there's a class, a lecture hall of 200 students and, and you were one, you were maybe the only or one of, you know, five or so uh, students of color who looked like you. Um, and so uh, that caused you to want to find, you know, other students who had similar backgrounds and experiences to, to study with or to just uh, commiserate with or to just socialize with, right? So um, I became active in student organizations like the National Society of Black Engineers. That was the one I was most active in. And you use that as a mechanism to sort of uh, anchor yourself to the campus and have a sense of belonging. And it wasn't always uh, for academic reasons. It was often just to uh, have other people to, to, to socialize with and, and to talk with. I actually ended up meeting my wife through that organization, which is another story I can tell you if you're interested. But um, uh, as a dean later in my career, you know, um, you know, actually throughout and then uh, in a position of leadership and authority, I wanted to find a way to correct uh, that underrepresentation of people of color in STEM fields. So I developed a number of programs um, that uh, were fairly successful in doing so and ultimately led to, as you mentioned in the introduction, Georgia Tech becoming the largest producer of uh, African-American engineers in the country and women engineers in the country and um, led to my uh, receipt of that award from President Obama in 2015. So um, I'm very proud of that. What was one of the programs at Georgia Tech that you that you thought was really instrumental in yeah. bringing them. So um, the first program that we um, that I developed was called um, SURE, which is an acronym for Summer Undergraduate Research in Engineering. So the idea was we would bring a bunch of undergraduates from around the country to our campus to let them do a research project with a faculty advisor and a graduate student as a mentor. Um, they spend 10 to 12 weeks on campus. Um, uh, the ultimate goal was to recruit them to come to campus as a graduate student, right? So about 75% of those students over the many years that the program, well, the program still exists now, but the many years that I ran the program, um, were, went to graduate school somewhere in engineering, and about half of those came to Georgia Tech for engineering. Um, I'll, I'll mention one more program that I, that I developed, which was called FACES, another acronym for Facilitating Academic Careers in Engineering and Science. But the idea was there to take the graduate students, get them through the PhD, and into academic careers, be, make them into professors. Uh, during the time that program was uh, uh, operational, more than 400 uh, people of color in STEM got degrees, PhD degrees in, at Georgia Tech, and that was by far the most in the country. Uh, so I'm very, very proud of that. They're scattered around the country now in various professorial roles. Many have gone on to have their own great careers and get awards and have, you know, be tenured professors. So um, very proud of that legacy. 
and then you see Davis. Um, so you you had spent time in California before. You were at uh, Cal Berkeley as right, a student, student at Berkeley. Right? Yeah. Um, so what made you decide to go for and accept the job at UC Davis, and and what made you think you were the right person to lead it at at that point in time? Well, you know, I was very happy and established at Georgia Tech. I was there for 26 years, and um, I said if I ever leave, three things will have to be true. It will have to be a great university in a great location, and my wife will have to agree to come with me. <laughs> so all those three criteria were met, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I responded to a uh, phone call from a search firm who was doing the chancellor search for Davis. I knew Davis's great reputation in many areas. Everyone knows about agriculture and veterinary medicine. Um, and, but I, what I learned when I came here was across the board excellence, which was uh, 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 even more uh, compelling. Um, but also uh, the social justice mission, the social mobility mission, we're ranked very highly nationally in terms of the transformational effect we have on our students. We have 40% of our students, more than 40% are first generation. We have a significant minority population, about 30% of our freshmen, our California freshmen are students of color. And um, all those things were also uh, uh, things that were um, uh, touched, uh, talked to my, spoke to my spirit and my, my desire to make a difference for those type of students. Uh, and here I am. Here you are. I think it's, you're starting year three. You've been here This is the beginning years. of year three. Beginning of year up. three. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, you know, what, what did you learn? And I guess what particularly surprised you, if anything, during your first year, that seems to be like the look, watch, listen year. Um, and you learn a lot, but there may be things that surprised you. And then after year one, year two seems to maybe the year where you start putting things into place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So year one, what was some observations in year two? What did you start putting into place? So one of the things I just alluded to, the, the pleasant surprise in year one was beyond the things you hear about, which are, you know, ag and, and, and vet med and, and, and wine, of course, that <laughs> there's excellence across the board in, in engineering and law and business and, and, and things I'm not going to forget to mention, medicine and nursing. And, um, uh, so uh, the fact that uh, I was able to come to a place that was already uh, very strong in so many disciplines, uh, but not yet as well known as I think UC Davis should be. Certainly we're well known here in the, in the Sacramento area and region, well known, uh, say, west of the Rockies. But uh, if you're not in higher ed and you're not from west of the Rockies, you probably don't know much about UC Davis. So one of our missions now is to correct that, right? So, um, and we've, uh, in year two, uh, uh, we were trying to execute on a strategic plan, which we've developed in year one for the next 10 years. And we call that plan to boldly go. And you probably will get the reference. <laughs> and uh, we are in the midst of um, uh, developing something we're calling Aggie Square here in Sacramento, which is our innovation hub that we're building adjacent to the UC Davis Health Campus, uh, which will, will be our place where we take ideas, research ideas from the laboratory to the marketplace. And we do some economic development and job creation and community engagement um, with not only our students, but also the, the surrounding area. We have a place for entrepreneurs to join with us, we have uh, spots for industry partners to land and, and co-locate with us and all those sorts of things. And the last thing that I'm uh, heavily involved with is, is fundraising, which all chancellors and presidents of universities do. We're in what is, what is known as the quiet phase of a, of a capital campaign. I don't know why we call it that because we're always talking about it. <laughs> but uh, ultimately, I think we'll be announcing a campaign to raise $2 billion for UC Davis over the next seven years or so. so. Um, uh, yeah, I was just reading um, 
that Stanford has a, a billion dollars is they were the first one to hit that market now I think they're up to five billion or so Stanford raises about a billion a year a so, billion a you year. Know, uh, we're not quite there yet but I'd love to be in, in that situation <laughs> sooner sooner hopefully rather than later mm -hmm. I, and I always think it's interesting to ask you know the leadership question when someone uh, steps up and takes a, a very big role a very uh, prominent role and um, maybe comes from a background uh, that uh, there's a certain focus. So I, I ask this because I feel like uh, engineering and the whole right brain, left brain, you're from an engineering background and uh, higher education, a lot of liberal arts. Mm -hmm. And I think there was some mention someone said about right brain and left brain. Sometimes there's clashes or there's differences of opinions. So in terms of managing, especially such a major institution where there are so many colleges and so many right. different um, uh, ways of learning and ways of thought. How do you manage? What's your overall uh, management strategy? Yeah, UC Davis is the most comprehensive university in, in the UC system and maybe in the country. We have 104 undergraduate degrees and 96 graduate and professional degrees. So it's very broad, very comprehensive. Uh, even though there's a sort of a STEM emphasis, there's there are many very strong programs that have nothing to do with STEM. But and if you know um, uh, engineers or people in, in science, um, you know we're sort of stereotyped as not being very social. Um, you know, there's the old joke that you know how do you tell an engineer uh, when you meet an engineer they're looking at your shoes instead of their shoes. So <laughs> um, I try to be a little bit more outgoing than that stereotype um, and um, so Davis has presented me with the uh, opportunity and the challenge to learn about other fields that I didn't have to before Georgia Tech was 80 percent science and engineering so I was very much in my element but at UC Davis we have very strong liberal arts and humanities and social sciences programs that um, uh, also deserve my attention and, and, and deserve uh, 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 publicity and other things that we should we should talk about so um, I've been Working on doing that, um, part of the strategic plan is, is, as I said, to to make UC Davis more of a household name, to make us one of the three or four universities or five universities that's on the tip of your tongue when you talk about the nation's great public research universities. Um, some of the rankings recently have, have helped us there. We're number uh, four public university in Money Magazine's national rankings, uh, number five public university in Wall Street Journal, and today uh, number 11 in, in U.S. News and World Report we have to educate them a little bit. We're a little bit better than that. But uh, all, all the, the message is uh, excellence, uh, no matter how you measure uh, excellence at UC Davis. And uh, so going back to STEM, I feel like, especially in the public schools, and again, as a librarian um, in the pre-K to sixth grade, STEM is something I... I, I hear a lot because a lot of schools are, you know, talking about this and, and how to get kids more interested in STEM and, and ha get them career s skills because STEM seems to be one major way to uh, for great jobs in the future. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as an ideal strategy and tactics for getting students into STEM programs and achieving career success there, especially for women? Obviously in Silicon Valley, this is, you know, particularly there's an area of, you know, um, the inequality there and just the issues that women face, right. but maybe across the board in terms of uh, getting women, women into STEM careers and keeping them there. That seems to be a big challenge. Right. So how do you address that? So I think uh, certainly the reason why STEM careers are popular is because there is demand and there is uh, there are good, high-quality jobs waiting for the students who are, are studying those in those fields and um, careers available in those fields. Um, 
so I spent a lot of my, my career um, uh, raising awareness about these opportunities in STEM for um, people of color and women. And I think a lot of the challenge is to make the, the opportunities, um, raise awareness about the opportunities, uh, get the students connected with mentors who can help them uh, uh, be resources for these opportunities, and then pr provide those resources, provide the scholarships and fellowships and things to get them through school, the internships and co-ops to get them connected to careers and, uh, and help them get launched on their careers. That's really the, those have been the keys. Now, the one thing that, that is also important that's related to, to women and people of color is, is the culture and the environment in these uh, 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 companies that are hiring them. And, 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 you know, honestly, if we're going to be, be frank and honest with ourselves, the culture uh, in, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere has not really been conducive to, to women being successful, particularly in IT and, and computer science-related fields. And we're trying to do what we can to, to change that. And you do that by having critical mass and by having some awareness and by having some, some training and, and uh, education about um, what, uh, uh, how all can contribute to the success uh, of the company in those careers. Yeah, I was wondering, as a as the chancellor of a, a university, you know, you're feeding a lot of these technology companies uh, their talent. Right. So is that a, a a strength where you can have a sit down with them and talk about, you know, let's 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 change the way and you know, yeah. emphasize this. Do you do you do that? We do. We have. I have a chancellor's advisory board, and, and many of the, the the disciplines across the campus also have industry advisory boards where they have these conversations. Um, uh, I think that the, in many industries, the leadership is sort of aware and get, get it about the necessary changes that have to be made. The challenge is more at the, the mid-level manager and the hiring manager sorts of roles where we have to uh, have some, some, some cultural change, probably more the mid-level mid -level management where the cultural change is needed. And what about education in, in, in general, higher education, I guess? Um, I think I read somewhere that diversity in, in higher ed is still, you know, it maybe varies across the board depending on where you are, but it could still be improved. So is that sure. something that you look at and try to, you know, diversity in terms of profess, professional and... Absolutely. Management? Higher ed has nothing to brag about vis-a-vis -vis industry with regard to diversity. Uh, we at, at UC Davis, even though I just gave you some, some nice statistics, um, for our student body is, is making some progress, but our faculty and staff have a long way to go to reach parity uh, with California, let alone the nation, uh, in, in um, our, our representation of people of color in, in, at the university. And we're no different from our peer universities in that aspect. Uh, but um, so uh, there are programmatic interventions. There are um, uh, cultural interventions that need to be made. We hired a vice chancellor for diversity, equity, inclusion at UC Davis this year. That was that was an idea of mine, uh, and the idea is to give that office uh, uh, comprehensive responsibility for not only the, counting the noses of our students, faculty, and staff, but also making sure that the people that uh, we attract are successful in their either their matriculation or in their careers at UC Davis. I'd like to invite people here in the audience to go up to the mic and, and ask your questions. I know there's some good ones out there. So while you line up, I, I do have a question about, uh, I guess, the titled Varsity Blues, that's what I read, the college admission scandal. Yeah. And obviously this is a big de deal nationwide. And while UC Davis wasn't one of the schools involved, um, it seems like I was reading how the UC system, <laughs> the chancellor crossed his fingers there. The UC system has plans to improve the way it admits students. So I just wanted to get your take on, on the way college admissions is handled now, how it should be, you know, both in the UC system nationwide. What do you think 
needs to be changed, if anything, about the process? Sure. Uh, before I answer that, let me just say that this Varsity Blues uh, scandal, quote-unquote, involved on the order of 30 or 40 people, and, and, and we admit hundreds of thousands of students to universities across the country in the United States. So I think it's kind of gotten a bit salacious and, and uh, overblown because of the celebrities that are involved and that sort of thing. That's not to excuse the behavior because it was bad behavior, but I do think we have uh, sort of um, blown it out of proportion in some sense. Um, in terms of the, the changes, uh, so once the, the, the news broke about some of these uh, uh, improper practices, UC Davis uh, uh, underwent our own audit of our admissions processes uh, to make sure that uh, we felt like we were comfortable doing what we were doing. Uh, the answer was yes. We think that we're fairly clean. There's always room. There's always room for improvement in some of the processes, particularly around student athletes and things like that. But I think we've got a really good uh, system in place. The university system, the UC system, has gone undergone a similar system-wide audit, and I, I'm, uh, I'm told that the, the the state auditor is going to to have UCs and CSUs and, and all the the universities, public universities, undergo an audit. Uh, to make sure that we are being fair in our admissions processes and practices. So um, uh, I think we're in pretty good shape. Uh, uh, we have a set of criteria that we look at for all students. Uh, it's yielding pretty good results. We'd still like to, to be, um, we have some, some room for improvement in the area of diversity, certainly, but, but I think our processes in general are, are, are fair and equitable in admissions. All right, let's have our first question at the mic. Hi, my name is Trinity Haynes, and I'm a high schooler at Franklin, which is an Elk Grove, uh, very close to Sacramento. And as a high schooler in leadership, I was wondering how you would present or give advice to a student that is choosing colleges, and then also the steps that you should take. Okay, thanks Trinity, great questions. I think, um, first of all, you need to make sure that uh, you get as many um, uh, well, the obvious things are make excellent grades in high school and do well on the standardized tests, but you know that already, right? But beyond that, I think uh, look for some uh, extracurricular experiences where you can demonstrate leadership. That might be in clubs, that might be on athletic teams, that might be in entrepreneurship. There's a number of ways you could go abroad and do things. There are many ways you can demonstrate that, but those are things that can kind of set you apart. Admissions is very competitive. Uh, at UC Davis, we get about 100,000 applications for our freshman class every year. Uh, the class ends up being about a little more than 8,000, maybe 8,500 students. Where a third of those, however, are community college transfers. So it's a really competitive first-time freshman situation. Um, so uh, I would say if there are um, opportunities on the campuses that you're interested in for summer programs while you're in high school, please take advantage of those. Uh, find some mentors. I mentioned mentoring before. Find a mentor or mentors who can help direct you and, and, and you know, uh, uh, apply uh, to places where you think you can be successful and have majors that you are passionate about. I had a question actually about the college essay. I just agonized over what I should write. So I don't know if you read any or uh, just uh, have any advice on essay topics that are just so tried and like don't even, <laughs> that's just, we've read that a million times or one that really stands out. I don't personally read them, but as I mentioned, we have 100,000 or so applications, so we hire people to, to do the reading and we have a, a rubric that they use to score the essays. But the idea is to make you know, uh, yourself distinct from your you know, competition. So if there are things about your experience that you think are relevant to uh, your success at the university that may not come through on uh, uh, 
just from test scores and, and grades, like if you've been in a leadership role or you've, you've um, um, you know, uh, started an organization or you've, or you've done something that are, is unique, those are things you need to, to highlight. Uh, and if you can get references that can speak to those experiences, that's helpful as well. Thanks for the great question. Mm. All right, next question at the mic. Uh, I'm Robin Fine, and um, I'm really excited about the idea of Aggie Square. Mm -hmm. um, so I would really like to know more about exactly how that's going to work and where you are in the development process sure. and how long it will take and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, thanks, Robin. Great questions. Mm -hmm. uh, so Aggie Square is modeled loosely after something I had some involvement with at my previous institution, uh, which was called Technology Square there. But the idea is to not only do teaching and research, but also uh, to uh, sort of uh, catalyze entrepreneurship. So we'll have uh, incubators and accelerators at Aggie Square. We'll also have, as I mentioned, landing places for industry partners to co-locate with us, do research with us, and, and try to productize ideas with us. Um, and um, uh, so we've got about 25 acres of land. Um, we have, uh, just this summer, we've issued uh, requests for qualifications for developer partners that will help us construct the buildings that we have in mind. And for our phase one buildings, we're going to have uh, probably about four facilities, a couple of um, life science research-oriented buildings, one uh, classroom office tower sort of building, and then a, some housing, some mixed-use housing, um, all around an actual square, which we'll call Aggie Square, <laughs> uh, which will have a, a, be a locus for community engagement and, and uh, lots of activities, or social activities and other professional activities. Uh, we are uh, narrowing down the, the, the developers that applied through our request for qualifications down to um, uh, um, probably um, either the one or two developers that we'll end up working with. And that process is ongoing. We've just, we're about to issue a request for proposals from the narrowed down list of, of people that responded to the request for qualifications. And um, we expect to finalize our developer partner um, by November, December-ish. And then we'll start the process of, of, you know, constructing the facilities. We hope to have Aggie Square's first phase open by 2021 uh, um, or 2022, something like that. Well, probably 22, 23, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yes. Um, is it your sense from contacts with tech companies, startups, people like that, that there is a real um, possibility of growing a lot of that stuff in Sacramento as a second hub? So the answer is yes. So I think there's a strong appetite for um, Sacramento uh, for many reasons. One, there's a bit of uh, saturation in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's, it's crowded, it's, it's expensive, and so people are looking for alternatives. Um, I think there are the, the necessary key ingredients here in Sacramento in that we have uh, you know, a, a city that has the potential to be a world-class city, if not already. We have a, uh, a, a great university that's nearby and willing to be a partner. And we have uh, a, a business community that is really, really um, uh, anxious for these sorts of things to, to happen in the city. So I think that con combination of, of, uh, of attributes is really uh, makes us the right time and the right place in Sacramento. Thank you. That's a good question, and I actually, I wanted, I had that on my list. I wanted to ask, is there something that Sacramento, 
you know, the the government, the the business community, residents should be doing more of or emphasizing more to get this activity here? Well, I think we do have great government partners. I should have mentioned that we're working very closely with the city. Uh, Mayor Steinberg, who's a, an Aggie alum uh, of our law school, which is helpful, <laughs> uh, has been a really strong advocate and a great partner with us on Aggie Square, and, and as well as the city council and other, other members of, of, of the group of elected officials have been very uh, uh, anxious and, and, and very helpful in, in helping us get going. Um, uh, we think that... Um, um, there, there are many good examples across the country of, of similar developments. I mentioned one, um, but there's uh, uh, university, industry, government uh, partnerships that, you know, that really is the, you know, the triple helix, if you will, uh, that I've heard Lewis Stewart use those, that terminology uh, of, of what you need to, to, to make something like this successful. And we've got that here in Sacramento. Yeah, Lewis Stewart's the chief of innovation, innovation for, officer, for the city yeah, of Sacramento. City. Yeah, does it also help that you're by the state capitol? I mean, does that help you uh, the, get things done? Being in the capital city of the fifth largest economy in the world is also a benefit, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Next question. Ralph Ochoa. I'm an attorney in town. Uh, Chancellor, could you uh, tell us what the status is of the online program that UC Davis might have uh, and perhaps compare it or contrast it to other campuses in the system. And then secondly, um, do we really need four years of courses at a university to get your degree? That's a great question. That's something, the last part of your question is something that people in higher education are debating quite uh, vigorously, vigorously now. Um, uh, the, in terms of the online offerings, UC Davis has uh, 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 recently approved and will be offering our first uh, online degree program, an MBA, which will start this fall. Um, so we're really excited about that, and that's the first of, I hope, many uh, programs to come. Um, I think uh, from a pedagogical standpoint, the sweet spot for online degrees is probably at the graduate professional level, not at the undergraduate level. Uh, and I could get into some of the reasons why I think that way, but uh, there have been various studies that kind of support that. However, I do think there's a role for online education as a complement or a supplement to what we do in the classroom, the physical classroom. And, and that could get at what your second question was uh, in helping us sort of speed up the, the process and, and the credentialing process if we uh, make better use of those sorts of uh, uh, technologies and uh, uh, we can potentially reduce time to degree, make better use of our resources on the physical campus and, and many other things. So I think there are, there are some arguments to be made for for speeding up the, the time it takes to get credentialed but do I understand from what you said that uh, up to this time you have not cut certain courses out or made it a three-year uh, to degree we, we have certainly like all universities there are there are ways to get advanced placement credit and to reduce the time that it takes to degree or, or uh, at UC Davis like the like in many other places uh, we don't yet have a three-year degree program if that's the question uh, that's been discussed and it may happen but we don't currently have such a thing um, uh, certainly that's something that uh, lends itself to the, uh, the more prepared and talented students those those sort of students uh, would probably be the first group that we think about uh, in terms of offering those sort of programs, but there's no reason why we have to stop there. All right, next question. Hey guys, my Hi. name is Tarek. Uh, as an incoming freshman student at UC Davis, I'm excited to be here, and it's an honor to meet you, Chancellor. 
so like when I first got accepted to UC Davis, like I was really happy because it's a beautiful campus with such a high reputation and I was like expecting not to pay much money. But it turns out like for my freshman year, after my loans and financial aids, uh, I'm required to pay like to be honest, like around forty-five thousand. So like a I, year. Yeah, like for That's my freshman year. Total cost of yeah. education, including housing and food and, and yeah. books. And so like as a chancellor of UC Davis, Davis, sorry, uh, like what things can you do to make sure that like people don't like people. Uh, don't end up like in situations like me. Right. First of all, I want to tell you, you've made an excellent choice. I can tell how smart you are just by looking at you. Thank so, you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so we, we, we welcome you to, to join us at Davis uh, in fall quarter. Uh, affordability is something that uh, is a serious issue that uh, not only are we grappling with at Davis, but across the system and indeed across the nation. And I will say that we are proud of the fact that if you're for for students whose family income is less than, I think the number is about $80,000, tuition is free. Um, uh, we, we use uh, all of our tuition that we collect in the program we call return to aid. So a third of the, uh, the tuition we collect goes back into financial aid for the students who are uh, less advantaged. Um, but that doesn't address uh, some of the other issues that are involved in the total cost of attendance, which are housing and food and, and, and books. Uh, we are uh, uh, working to address all three of those issues uh, from a basic needs standpoint. We just uh, actually piloted a program on, on books where we'll, where we'll allow students to pay a subscription. I believe the number is about $200, uh, I, I don't know if I'll get this right, a quarter or a month, probably a month, maybe it's a quarter, uh, for all their books. The books will be online. And so we're tr piloting this as a way to improve affordability for, for course materials and, and textbooks. Um, we are in the midst of a big housing uh, construction phase. We're, we're trying to make it uh, our campus uh, uh, a place where about 50% of our students will be able to live on campus, which is often much more affordable than um, off-campus apartment living, especially in Davis, where there's not a lot of availability. Yeah, um, I'm living off-campus. Yeah, my so freshman. you know this, yeah. right? So, uh, and, you know, we've tried to hold uh, as much as we can, the line on tuition. There's only been one tuition increase in the last six years in the UC. Um, and uh, trying to get our partners uh, in, in the state legislature to, to continue to support the, the UC so that we can maintain the high quality uh, and, and, and keep uh, the cost from being passed on to, to the students and their parents. But this is an issue, as I said, that we grapple with. Thank you. Sure. Good luck. Tarek, where did you, uh, where are you coming here from and what are you studying or planning to uh, study? I come from Lebanon. Okay. Yeah, and I'm studying neurobiology. Yeah. Well, welcome to Sacramento Davis and Thank you. Uh, good yeah. luck with the school. Thank so, you so much. Thank you for coming. Um, and that's a great question. I, and I was going to ask about that too, adding on to Tarek's question about tuition. Uh, maybe the UC system has gotten some flack about the increase in out-of-state uh, out students coming in because they pay higher tuition. But in terms of, you know, you're a CEO, money has to come from somewhere. A fundraising is part of it, but also yes. yeah. getting the money. Right. Um, uh, out-of-state students pay more. Um, how do you balance those factors, I guess, when, when 
picking students every year, you know, you have to keep the lights on, you have to get the right amount of diversity, but you're also a university uh, system that was established here to bring students in from California. So what are the trade-offs and what do you have to keep in mind with all this? Yeah, just we are actually uh, constrained right now at 18% maximum non-residents at the UC. So um, there may be some urban legends about all these foreign students or, or all these non-out-of-state students who are flooding into the UC and preventing California residents from getting these positions. That's just not true anymore because we are at, at an 18% ceiling uh, for non-residents. And um, that is so that we can better serve uh, the California population, which uh, the tax money that you pay is, is designed to help us uh, serve. Um, but in terms of other revenue sources, you mentioned some of them. That's why I'm out fundraising, and that's why we have these campaigns. And we raised $234 million last year at UC Davis, which was the second best year ever. And um, we, we hope to continue along those trends. Uh, we, we get um, resources from clinical revenue of our hospital. We get resources from research expenditures. Um, um, we get a um, little money from uh, some of the auxiliary services, like housing and, 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 and food service. Um, uh, we are hopeful that we'll have another uh, potential revenue source uh, through uh, some of our professional uh, uh, education offerings uh, online and in person uh, because that's, a, that's a, I think, a, a potential rich source of, of uh, both service to, to the community as well as, as potential revenue for the university. So we'll, we'll turn over all the rocks and look for all the nickels that we can. And then you know, obviously UC Davis is a powerhouse. I remember when I was, again, applying for schools 30 years ago, they called UC Davis, at least in my school, Alfalfa Town. Um, and it was just like, uh, <laughs> no one really wanted to go there. But um, now I, it ha is such a powerhouse. And now I, I think of UC Merced as Davis as it was considered 30 years ago, it's, it's, it's going to be up there. But still, People think of you know UCLA, Berkeley, Stanford when it comes to getting any claim for research and business. And uh, I wanted to know how you wanted UC Davis to compare to those universities and those efforts, you know, especially when you're fundraising, and how you wanted to stand apart and and be you know significant. Um, well, I think uh, to your point, uh, I think Lady Bird referred to us as Midwest California, right, in the movie, right, something like that. Um, but. I think there's no such thing as bad publicity, so we, we'll take that. Um, so the UC in general, uh, you really can't go wrong. So I mentioned the US News rankings came out today, and um, uh, of, the, of the top dozen schools in the country, public schools in the country, six are UCs. So um, I don't think there's much of a, a differentiation between you know, UCLA and, and Berkeley are perceived as, as um, uh, the, the, the best in the, in the UC system, but I, there's not much, if any, drop-off between, say, those sister institutions and Davis uh, or, or San Diego or Irvine or Santa Barbara. We're all very, very high-quality institutions. Um, in terms of how we'd like to differentiate ourselves at Davis, you know, we'd like to be uh, a place that's um, known for um, serving the entire California population uh, in all its diversity dimensions and being a place where social mobility is a thing so students can come from uh, maybe humble, modest backgrounds and um, a trans have a transformative experience that prepares them for a career, a leadership in that career that can really make a difference for them and their families. Um, we, we, you know, I, I mentioned the, the sort of across the board uh, excellence that we have in our, we have six different um, professional programs and four colleges in, in those 100 degrees. 
Um, so there's lots of uh, choices that our students are able to make, uh, and we want those choices to pay off uh, by um, return on investment, but also by intellectual enrichment in whichever program they choose, neurobiology or whatever the choice they make. And uh, uh, that, that's, those are the, the attributes we'd like for UC Davis to have. All right. Uh, so I encourage other people to come up to the mic and ask more questions. I have a few because uh, we have a few more minutes left. Um, but I wanted to ask about the research uh, initiatives and, and actually some, some notable things that Davis has done that uh, recently or in the past couple of years that, that we may not know about. Um, it could be a Nobel Prize winner or it could be something that is just um, some research finding that's really going to change the course of something. I wanted to see if you could just uh, uh, highlight a couple of uh, faculty or, or, or research findings that, that uh, maybe are under the radar but are really significant. Well, just before I came here today, I was at the dedication ceremony for a project called the Explorer, which is a, a PET scanner, uh, three-dimensional imaging uh, for, for humans and for animals. Um, but it's the, the, uh, the, the, the Explorer can, is a full-body 3D imaging uh, uh, system that can image your entire body in less than a, in a second. Um, and so if you've got cancer or some other um, um, problem that needs to be studied and, and treated, uh, it's it's going to provide uh, uh, low dose uh, radiation dose um, imaging that doesn't exist did not exist before. Um, that uh, explorer was uh, developed by two UC Davis professors um, in medicine and engineering, and it, it's about a mile away from here if you ever need to use it. There's a, a another system that's used for veterinary medicine on our campus in Davis. Um, and that's just one example of the innovation that goes on at UC Davis. Um, something that people may not know, and I'm maybe getting in trouble for this, but I'll just mention it because I'm competitive. Uh, we had um, greater research awards than UC Berkeley last year. Um, people would not necessarily think that's true, but uh, we had uh, 800 and almost $850 million in research awards at UC Davis, which was a record for us. And we're, we're about at that same level this, this year, so we're on an upward trend headed toward a billion dollars in research funding. Why would you be in trouble uh, talking about that? I, mean, people I would Berkeley, think you'd want to talk about that all the time. No, I do talk about it a lot, but people at Berkeley don't like me to talk about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> they need to just uh, yeah. focus on their own thing. They did win the football game last Saturday. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I did want to ask about one research initiative that I thought was really very interesting. It sounds pretty uh, new and maybe uh, touching on the Star Trek uh, thing again. How UC Davis is partnering up with NASA to add deep yeah. space exploration yeah. and spacecraft to explore deep space. So can right. you... We have a program... Uh, and how much of a role did you play in this? That's what uh, I'd also like to know. A very little role I played other than being supportive. Uh, uh, the, pr the program is actually... Uh, to develop habitats for deep space and for 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 uh, potentially planetary settlement, uh, we have uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Stephen Robinson as the, the the chair of our Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. And Steve is an astronaut or a former astronaut. He had several space missions uh, and uh, is a UC Davis alum as well as a professor, and and, and is the leader of this particular uh, research program that that you just mentioned, Vanessa. And it's a 15 million dollar program funded by NASA. We have some collaborators as well, some other universities, but we are the lead, and we're very excited about the possibilities there. Do students get to work on any of these? We'll certainly have students, certainly graduate students, for sure. Okay. That's kind of what they do, but we'll have undergraduate research opportunities as well. Great. All right, next question at the mic. 
Hi, uh, my name is Jeff Fine. What I'm interested in is the role of the legislature in public universities. Mm -hmm. I think Georgia Tech is also a public university. It is. So maybe you can comment, I hope, about uh, what you've experienced here with respect to dealing with that uh, in comparison to Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, I understand just from general reading that states are decreasing or have mm -hmm. generally decreased their support yeah. of public yeah. universities. So in that broader context, uh, I wonder what you're finding here and how that compares uh, to Georgia. Yeah, good question. So uh, James uh, Duderstadt was the former president of the University of Michigan, another great public university. And he said, we all, all public universities, we used to be state funded and then we were state supported and now we're just kind of state located. But <laughs> that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, uh, you know, uh, both in Georgia and in California, as well as across the country, um, uh, state support of uh, public universities has declined in recent years. I think that's uh, a fair statement that no one would, could disagree with. There's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, put any sort of uh, blame on, on the legislature. They have a lot of responsibilities. There's been, there's been a recession. Other things have happened. Uh, we would like to... Uh, uh, enhance our partnership with the state and the legislature and continue to get the support that we need to serve our students. Um, I think that we've had um, a slight uptick in recent years from, from the California legislature in our support and we're grateful for that. We'd like for that to continue because we're not quite where we need to be, um, but um, we are moving, I think, in, in the right direction. Um, if you look at our overall budget at UC Davis, for example, um, the, the, the direct state allocation minus tuition is about 9% of our overall budget. So uh, in, in you know, decades ago, um, that number was you know, much higher. And that's the reason why you see some of the tuition increases that uh, uh, Tarek has, has mentioned in his, in his question. Uh, because our costs have not been uh, uh, going up much higher than the rate of inflation, but, but um, the, the, the fact that um, the state support is diminished means we have to make that up somehow, which means the tuition has, has been and the way that's been done. We don't want to do that. We'd rather have keep tuition f flat or at least at the rate of inflation. Uh, only way we're going to be able to do that going forward is to have some support from, from the state. Actually, that, that ties into, that great question ties into another one I had on the federal level. Uh, I think it remains the top, the federal government remains the top source of research funding for UC Davis. But obviously there's a lot of contention between California and the current administration. Climate change, science research and funding seems to be in the crossfires at times. What does this that currently mean for UC Davis? You know, fortunately for the most part, um, federal funding for, for, for science and engineering and, 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 and research has been a nonpartisan issue. Um, with some exceptions, maybe environment, and there's some exceptions. But um, we have, uh, you know, NIH has been a very uh, strong source of support for UC Davis. That's and a has, National Institutes of Health. Thank you. I'm sorry, National Institutes of Health. Uh, and they've received generous uh, 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 portions, portions in the federal budgets that are even under this administration. National Science Foundation, similarly. So we hope that trend continues, that uh, the support for research is a completely nonpartisan issue and it remains uh, strongly supported. And, and if so, I think we'll be okay. All right, we have, this will be our last question of the mic. Hello. Hi. Um, in this new age of school unsafety, I'd say, or yeah. attacks on schools, yeah. uh, school shootings, I wanted to know what UC Davis has done to 
keep the students safe and go in a little bit more about security? That's a great question. This is scary times we live in where there, there are school shootings and mass shootings uh, all over the country. Uh, we have regular drills and the things you would expect. We have a warning system that is, each student has on their smartphone, a texting system that warns them when there's trouble. Um, we, we have a great uh, uh, campus police uh, department uh, led by Joe Farrow, who's former um, uh, leader of uh, California Highway Patrol, but now our, our chief of police, um, that really takes these issues uh, very uh, seriously and to heart. And we have uh, uh, regular, uh, as I mentioned, drills for preparedness and, and telling, uh, helping our students and our staff and faculty who are also uh, uh, potentially in danger know what to do in these situations. We actually had a shooting uh, of a police officer in the city of Davis, not on campus, but that happened last academic year, uh, which is a pretty, again, a very scary situation. But we had to lock down the campus and take measures that uh, we, we needed to keep our students safe. We've been fortunate that we have not had an incident at UC Davis uh, or in the, in the nearby area. But that doesn't mean it's not going to potentially happen. So uh, we, we have a, a series of protocols. We have exercises all the time to, 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 to make, make sure we're prepared in the eventuality of something like that. Uh, and Ashley, I had another question that came to mind with that one. In terms of student activism, I was wondering in your years of uh, you know leading colleges and universities, has there been uh, a change or a difference in the way students uh, uh, speak up and speak out um, about different topics? I mean, obviously, after the, uh, the Marjorie Douglas uh, shooting, um, March for Our Lives was such a big deal. And I feel like that really inspired a lot of students in Sacramento, um, and maybe at UC Davis too. So I was just wondering in your years of it, what have you seen in any changes or uh, well, comparisons I, contrast? Great question. I, I think it's, it's really hard to do uh, a comparison. I, my previous institution uh, did not have the same level of student activism as we have at, at UC Davis and in the UCs in general. Uh, uh, what we try to do is to make sure that the, uh, first of all, I think it's great that our students are aware and active about societal and social uh, uh, political issues. Um, what we try to do is to channel their energy and act activism uh, toward uh, uh, productive pursuits, things that they can actually be uh, uh, influential in changing, right? So when we talk about our dealings with the legislature, for example, uh, we try to bring students with us when we visit City Hall and, and, and the Capitol to talk to our elected officials uh, about uh, what they can do to help us. Um, and, um, and we, you know, there are, uh, uh, you, you hear stories about the, the various uh, um, uh, provocateurs and, and, and people that come to campus to uh, get students stirred up and, and have, you know, what have been violent protests on other campuses. We've been fortunate not to have had the ex that experience in recent years. Um, and I think we'll, we'll hopefully, by uh, trying to work with our students directly and channel their energies and their activities in a productive way, we'll, we'll hopefully continue along those lines. All right, and last question for you, Chancellor May. You had mentioned the 10-year the strategic plan to boldly go. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, some highlights that you wanted to mention of it and, and tying this into, you know, when or if you leave UC Davis, they may, you know, hopefully not take you up by the, but, uh, you know. They may beam me up. <laughs> they, may, they beam you up. Um, 
What do you want UC Davis to look like when you go? What do you want to, like when you're going out to the sunset, you turn around, you want to have seen in place a few things? So that's a really great question. Our strategic plan has, has five pillars that we're trying to work on at Davis. One has to do with the educational uh, experience of our students. We want them to be obviously prepared to be leaders in a, in a globally competitive uh, uh, environment. Uh, based on the, the, the education they receive uh, at UC Davis. The second pillar is about our research enterprise and making sure we're doing research that's relevant and use-inspired and will make society better. The third pillar is about uh, 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 making sure that uh, our campus environment is conducive to the success of all of our uh, uh, constituents, our students and faculty and staff from a diversity standpoint. We want to make sure that uh, anyone feels like UC Davis is a, a, a place of choice uh, for their studies or for their careers. The fourth pillar is about um, uh, branding, if you will, and, and raising the visibility of what we do nationally, uh, partnering with strategic partners uh, on a global basis to, to make sure the name and the reputation and the impact of UC Davis is known. And the last one is about, uh, last pillar is about uh, entrepreneurship and innovation, and so that's kind of reflected in this Aggie Square project where we want to, to have uh, the impact of UC Davis felt through developing the local and the state and the national economy, creating jobs, creating new industries, creating uh, uh, better ways to improve society through our, through our research activities. So if all those things happen uh, in 10 years, uh, I'll feel very happy and satisfied and feel like I uh, made a contribution to, to the university and to the state. And, and you know maybe there'll be a statue or a building or something. <laughs> what would you prefer, a, a building or a statue? What and what would be in the building? Um, what type of building would it be? Uh, so statues are more prone to vandalism. So <laughs> maybe a building. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, any kind of uh, 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 legacy that uh, continues to benefit the students of UC Davis well past the time I'm there. Maybe some spaceship exploration <laughs> would be nice. We have a building we call the Death Star. <laughs> That's probably, probably not the building I want to be named after me. But <laughs> What's in the Death Star? It just has a unique architecture. It's, oh, okay. it's really nothing to do with Star Wars. But <laughs> Chancellor May, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us about UC Davis. It's such a powerhouse. I think we all knew that, but now we, it's really concrete. So thank you. Thank you, audience, for the great questions. My pleasure. And we'll wrap it up and, and uh, say goodnight. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This episode of Groundbreakers Q&A with UC Davis Chancellor Gary May was held on September 9th at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. Thanks to Chancellor May, Dana Tapusis, and Mabel Salon at UC Davis for participating. To Antiquity Midtown owners Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose for hosting this event. And to our volunteers Nate Graham and Rodrigo Ramirez for running things so smoothly. Also thanks to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.